All right, today we are going into the book of John, chapter 7, verses 24 to 52. So we are um, picking up uh, from where we left off last week in the earlier part of John, uh, chapter 7. And uh, today we are, you know, so last week we looked at Jesus when he was going up to the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. You remember the whole thing about his brothers saying, hey, you know, go on up. If you want to be somebody, go up to Jerusalem, show everybody what you got. And Jesus talked about, you know, um, that he only does things on God's timeline according to God's will. And then when it was according to God's time, he went up to Jerusalem. So he is up there right now. That's where we find him during the Feast of Tabernacles. So let's read first through uh, the second half of this chapter. It says, Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears... Will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowds muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Excuse me. Then Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, 
Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is the word of God. There are several major themes that we see in this passage. One of the major themes is one that we saw earlier in chapter 7. We also saw earlier when Jesus' mother asked him to provide more wine at the wedding at Cana, and that had to do with Jesus' hour. Again, uh, in terms of uh, Jesus living according to the timeline of God, that Jesus will go to the cross when it's time for him to go to the cross and not any earlier and not any later. Jesus lives according to the timeline of God and nothing can stop that. We see that theme repeating here in the second half of chapter 7. For example, when these people are like, who is this guy? He can't be the Messiah. The Messiah, when he comes, we don't know where he's going to come from, but this guy, we know where he comes from, and they wanted to arrest him. But it's said in verse 30 that nobody laid a hand on him. Why? Because Jesus' hour had not yet come. They couldn't do it. They wanted to grab him. They wanted to arrest him. But as much as they wanted to, as much as they tried, they weren't able to do it. They couldn't. It wasn't Jesus' time. Later in the chapter, we see the Pharisees, the religious leaders. They hear the people talking about Jesus. And some were saying, I think this is the Messiah. I think he's the Christ. And the Pharisees are like, okay, this is too much. We have to put an end to this. And what do they do? They sent people to go arrest Jesus. And these people go to arrest Jesus. And they're, they're there waiting for the right moment. There's crowds of people there. So they're listening to Jesus talking as they're waiting for just the right time to go and grab him. But as they're listening to him, something happens. They are amazed. They are stupefied by Jesus's teachings. And then they go back to the Pharisees empty-handed. The Pharisees are like, where is he? And they said, nobody ever spoke like this man. They couldn't arrest him. They were sent on a mission. They had a very clear mission They weren't there to go listen to his teaching, but when they heard it, they couldn't lay a hand on him. There was nobody that could arrest Jesus until the time came, which was not another six months from this point in the book of John. We see this theme of God's sovereignty, his providence. Nobody could touch Jesus until his time came. Brothers and sisters, this is a really encouraging reality for all of us if you are a Christian, knowing that our God is completely sovereign over every square inch of this universe, that nothing happens apart from his will and his timing is an incredible comfort. Brothers and sisters, as Christians, we have a superpower. We have a superpower. That superpower is this. When you choose to live according to the will of God, nothing can stop the will of God from happening in your life. Absolutely nothing. When you live according to the timeline of God, his will will be accomplished in his way and in his timing, and nothing could ever stop that. We have this amazing superpower because of the sovereignty of our God. I heard a story a long time ago about this man, this young missionary, man who desired to be a missionary. And he went out to this very, very rural place to go and join this older missionary, a veteran missionary who had been out there for a long, long time. And they went out to this very rural place and he went and he met him. He introduced himself and 
and eventually they went to take a walk around their area, around the, the, the grasslands where they were. And as they were walking, they walked for quite a distance, and then they decided to turn around. At the point where they decided to turn around, the young man, the young missionary noticed a hyena in the distance. This made the young man, understandably, nervous. Hyenas are um, not an animal that you want to encounter. Their jaws are so powerful, they can just crush pretty much anything that they latch onto. And they decide to turn around, they start walking back. The young man's nervous, but he looks at the older missionary, and the older missionary is still chit-chatting about whatever. So he feels, oh, okay, he's not that worried, so we'll keep walking. This hyena is following them. As they walk for a while, eventually the young missionary looks over and he notices that there's about two or three hyenas now following them. Now his heart's beating a little bit faster. But he looks over at this older missionary, and he doesn't break a sweat. He seems perfectly calm. So the young missionary thinks, okay, all right. Well, he knows what he's doing. They must not attack them unless, you know, maybe there's more of them or something like that. They're walking further, and eventually the young man looks over, and he notices a whole full-blown pack of hyenas following them. And now he's thinking, we're in real trouble. If they attack, we're done for. We're dead we're dead. We still have a ways to go until we get back to, to our compound, get back behind our sa the safety of our gates. But he looks at the older missionary, and the older missionary is as cool as a cucumber. Not, not, not a worry in the world. So the young missionary thinks, these, these hyenas must not like people. They must just be bored or something or another. But if he's not worried, then I'm sure everything's fine. They just, they, there just must not be a threat for whatever reason. And then they walk back to their compound. They open the gate. They get in, and they close the gate behind them. And as soon as they get in, the older missionary goes, oh my gosh, did you see all those hyenas that were following us? Oh my gosh, they could have torn us limb from limb. They could have just killed us right then and there. And the young missionary looks at him and goes, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? This whole time? Are you, you mean they could have killed us? I, I wasn't worried because I looked at you and are you, our lives could have ended just like that? Is that what you're telling me? What are, what are you saying? And the old man was like, listen, listen, young man, calm down, calm down. <clears throat> yes, they could have killed us. But here's the reality. If God meant for us to go, if it was our time to leave this world, it wouldn't have mattered if the entire U.S. Army was in between us and those hyenas. We still would have died. But if our work for God is not yet done, then nothing in this world, whether that pack of hyenas or anything else, could have taken our lives away. That's, that is the type of peace that Christians can have when we know that when we live according to the will of God, nothing can stop the will of God from being accomplished in our lives when we seek to make ourselves available to God and to his work, God will accomplish all that he wants to do through us. Another major theme here is that the people did not know where Jesus was from. These people were there and they were debating and arguing over whether Jesus actually was the Messiah or not. Some of them said, he can't be the Messiah. When the Messiah comes, we will not know where he's from. Now, this is a, a not correct, but this was a view that kind of got popularized out of a misinterpretation of Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, where Malachi prophesied, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Now, we know that John the Baptist is the one who is that messenger. And the Lord, 
whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. That's the Messiah. And there were people who interpreted this as saying, oh, the Messiah, when he comes, he's going to just suddenly, bam, be on the scene. And he's going to show up. We're not going to know where he's come, where he comes from. And, and I can understand why there's a certain like romance to that, right? It's like, wow, this guy just poof, came on the scene, a deliverer, as opposed to what? Jesus, the carpenter? That guy, he's fixed so many pairs of shoes of mine. Him, he's the Messiah. That's not very romantic. That's not very mystical or amazing. People mistakenly thought we, we're not going to know where he's from. There are others who said, wait a second, he can't be the Messiah. The Messiah comes from Bethlehem. The Messiah is descended from David. If you remember from Matthew chapter 2, when the wise men came to King Herod, when they came from the east and said, where is the one who was born king of the Jews? And Herod freaked out and he called the priests together and he said, where is this Messiah supposed to be born? They knew, they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The priests knew the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. And Jesus indeed was born in Bethlehem. He didn't grow up in Bethlehem, but he was born there. In Luke chapter 2, we see that in that time, Caesar declared a census. And he declared that all the people had to go back to their homeland, where they were from, when the census is being done. So Joseph took Mary, who was pregnant with Jesus. They went back to Bethlehem because that's where Joseph was from. And he was descended from David. And Jesus was, in fact, born in Bethlehem. Sometimes I feel like, man, couldn't you just ask Jesus? <laughs> Get some clarification here. But apparently they weren't interested enough to really find out truly where he was from. He just, they just assumed, well, he's from Galilee. That's where he grew up. And ain't no Galilean going to be our Messiah. They were arguing about where Jesus was from. Is he from this town or from that town? Which physical place is he from? And now this is the understanding at a deeper level. The reality was that Jesus, even though he was from Bethlehem, Ultimately, he's not from this town or that town. Jesus is from heaven. He said to them, I am going to my father. I am going to heaven. Jesus came from heaven. That is really where he came from. It is a spiritual reality. Jesus was by the Father's side for all eternity, the perfect fellowship of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus entered into this world. It's called the incarnation. He took on human flesh, happened to be born in Bethlehem in fulfillment of prophecy, but Jesus came from heaven. Not a physical place in this world, but from a spiritual place, from the side of the Father. Now, this misunderstanding didn't just um, it wasn't just about where Jesus was from, but it also involved where Jesus was going. They did not understand where he was going either. When Jesus said to them, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me, you will seek me and you will not find me. And this is the part that, they, that really got them. Where I am, you cannot come. Now, they were scratching their heads at this. They're like, what do you mean? Where you go, we can't find him. Where does he intend to go? Does he intend to go amongst the dispersion among the Greeks? In other words, you know, there were Jews scattered all over the world at this point during the time of Jesus. The Assyrians came and conquered the Jews, Israel, 
scattered them all over the place in their empire. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian empire came and conquered Israel, deported many of the Jews and scattered them all over the place. There were Jews all over the, Mes- the Mediterranean world at this time. The Pharisees are trying to think, where in the world could he possibly go that we wouldn't find him? Is he going to go to, to where the Jews are in other places, to, to Greece or those places like that? Where can he be? You know, like uh, as a parent, when your kids are growing up, one of the favorite games that kids like to play is hide and go seek. If, you, if you're a parent, I'm sure you've played this before with your kids, right? And you know that no matter how good they are at hiding, you know they're in the house somewhere right? I mean, where could they possibly go? Although I have had moments of mild panic when, because my kids are so good at hide and go seek, it starts to mess with you. And you start thinking, could they actually have left the house? This is ridiculous how good they are at hiding. They're not under the bed. And then you're like, I give up. Where are you? As you start to panic and they pop out of a laundry hamper or they come out of one of the thin closets in the, in the linen closet or something like that. They're geniuses, right? But they're there. There's nowhere else they could go. These Jews are like, where, Jesus, could you possibly go that we could not follow, that we could not find you? This doesn't make sense. Jesus, see, this is the thing. Again, they were thinking, what physical location can you go that we can't go? There's no place like that. Where Jesus is going is he is going back to the Father. He is going back to heaven. The reality is he's not going back to a physical place. He is going back to a spiritual place. He is going back to the side of the Father. Jesus came, was born in human flesh, but he would die upon a cross, be buried, rise on the third day, and then he would ascend to heaven. He would return to where he came from, back to the Father's side, He would return to a spiritual place. So these Jews, the religious leaders, they constantly kept thinking about this from a physical perspective. Where did he come from? We don't know. Where is he going? We don't understand. Jesus is saying, I came from the Father, a spiritual place. I'm returning to the Father, a spiritual place. And then thirdly here, he says that when he goes back, he is going to pour out the Holy Spirit upon the people. Now, This is the the, the third part here. This is what we see happening on the day of Pentecost. So we have Jesus in heaven. He comes down, the incarnation. He goes back up to the Father, the ascension. And when he does, he sends the Holy Spirit down, the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Jesus is is, is giving a, a summary here of his journey and what he would do. He came down. He's going back up, and he's going to send the Holy Spirit down. Now, um, this is what he's saying here in verses 37 to 39. And I I want to spend the bulk of my time here. So let me just read this passage one more time. It says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Spirit has said, out of his heart will flow Rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The Holy Spirit had not yet been given. It doesn't mean the spirit wasn't working in the world, but the spirit had not been given in his fullness. Even in the Old Testament, 
We see that the Spirit of God, when he works, when he works on the people of God, like David or other people, the Spirit works on people. You see those words again and again, the Spirit rushed upon a person. But when Jesus gives the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit would come and indwell within the people of God. And the people didn't understand what he was talking about. But he was talking about the giving of the Spirit that would happen when he returned to heaven. This is why later in the book of John, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. How could it be better that Jesus goes away? Because when Jesus goes to the Father, he sends the Holy Spirit who will be everywhere with all believers throughout the world. Apparently, Jesus in his physical self could not do that in the same way that the Holy Spirit would come and do that. And that happened on the day of Pentecost. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. On the day of Pentecost, the promise of the Holy Spirit was fulfilled by Jesus. He sent the Holy Spirit from the Father's side, and he came down and he filled the people of God. Brothers and sisters, friends, how do we receive the Spirit of God? Isn't it amazing that God says, not only am I working in this world, God says, I will actually come and fill you. I will dwell within you. I will inhabit your very being, your heart, your soul. I will be with you, God within you in that way. Isn't that an amazing thing? God says that he does that. How? How do we receive the Holy Spirit? Jesus said, we come to him and we drink. We drink. Drinking is synonymous. It's metaphorical for coming to Jesus. We put our faith in Jesus, that he died upon the cross for our sins, that he was resurrected from the grave for our life so that we could live in fullness of life. That is how we drink. We come to Jesus. We believe in Jesus. And then we can drink of the Holy Spirit. This is what he told the Samaritan woman in chapter 4 that he gives living water, that if anyone drinks, they would not become thirsty again. We come and we believe in Jesus. He says here, if anyone thirsts. Friends, we get thirsty in this world. Jesus says, if anybody thirsts, and every single one of us does, he says, the way to quench that thirst is by going to him and drinking. Now, I, now, when he says this, there is so much going on here that I think um, can, can help us to gain a better picture of, of the urgency and of the power of this message and of why Jesus cried out. It's like he's, he's shouting, right? He's loud. He's being really loud about this. You know, in the Feast of Tabernacles, what would happen is that for seven days of this feast, 
the priests would go to the pool of Siloam. We will see this pool later on in the book of John. And on each day of the feast, they would go with a golden pitcher. They would take this pitcher and they would draw water from the pool of Siloam. And then they would head back to the temple in a procession, like a parade of people rejoicing, rejoicing. As they're walking back, people would be singing Psalms 113 through 118. People would be shouting hallelujah. People would be waving branches and and holding fruit in their hands and all these things that are involved in the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the feast that was going on here. They would go back to the temple. They would take this golden pitcher of water and they would begin to pour it into a bowl that was right next to the altar where sacrifice was made. They would do this on day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, and day seven. Now, there's some argument about whether the great day of the feast was day seven or if it was the day after the feast. But either way, I think the point of this is this. When they poured out their water during this Feast of Tabernacles, and you remember, Feast of Tabernacles was celebrating God's provision, especially for the Israelites when they were in the desert for 40 years. That's why they took branches and they made a little booth that they lived in because they were living out in the desert. It reminded them of that. That's what God told them to do. When they poured this water out, they were giving thanks for God's provision of water. And, and I think back to, like, to Moses striking the rock and water coming out of the rock in the desert, in the wilderness, to give the people water. It was, it was giving thanks to God for his provision of water, not only back then, but also just every day, every year for their crops. And it was also a way of acting out a prayer saying, God, continue to provide water, continue to provide rain for your people, continue to provide life for us that we may live. That's what it symbolized every time they poured this water out. And on the seventh day, on the last and greatest day of the feast, I cannot help but feel tempted to think that maybe as the people, as the priest is pouring out this water for the last time, symbolizing thanksgiving to God for giving the people water, asking God to give us water, that at that moment, maybe at that very moment, maybe this is why Jesus cried it out so loud because the crowds were there shouting and praising and giving thanks. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. To me. Whoever believes in me, as the Spirit has said, Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus, on this day of the feast, is saying, I am the true source of water. Not not, not just physical water, but not just water out of the rock in the Old Testament, but everything that that pointed forward to, living water. The water that you truly need for your soul. I think Jesus was crying out and saying, I am the fulfillment of what you are acting out right now. There's so many Old Testament passages about water and about God providing water and how it provides life. One I think about that I think is very fitting for for this passage is Isaiah 58 when it says, and the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desires in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. This is what God does. When you come to Jesus and you drink 
What he does for you is he makes you like a watered garden, like a spring of water that never runs out of water, even in scorched places, even in deserts. God gives you fullness. He satisfies you. The Spirit of God works within. He works within us. That is what Jesus says, to quench our deepest thirst. We all know, we all know when we're physically thirsty, right? How do you know? Well, you feel thirsty. (laughs) That's one easy way to know you're thirsty. You feel thirsty. But there are other things too, right? When you feel fatigued, maybe you need a glass of water. Um, If you've been around the block a few times, you know to monitor the color of your pee, but let's not talk too much about that. There are other ways to know as well. Maybe headaches. When you get a headache, you know, I need some more water. Maybe dizziness or lightheadedness. If you're really advanced, maybe you recognize my mouth is getting a little dry or my skin is looking a little dry. That's too advanced for me, but some of you are good at that. You know, I need to drink a glass of water. We, we know how to monitor signs that we need water, that, that we have physical thirst. There are signs also that we need, that we are spiritually thirsty, but oftentimes we tend to ignore them or we think that there's something else in this world that can satisfy that thirst apart from Jesus. There are so many signs that we spiritually thirst. For example, anxiety. Anxiety, which is so rampant now in our society. We think, oh, I feel anxious. We think it's because, well, I don't have enough control over my environment my job, my future. If I had more control, I wouldn't feel as anxious. If I just had more money, then I wouldn't have to worry about my bills. I wouldn't have to worry about uh, 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 being able to afford this or that. Then my anxiety would go away. If my friends would just understand me better and be better friends, I would have less anxiety. We think, we see this spiritual thirst and we think we can quench it with these other things. But Jesus said in John 14, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus says, you are thirsty, but it's not something. Your anxiety will not be taken away because you have more control, because things change. Only I, I can give you a peace that this world could never give to you. We may feel that sense of thirst and feeling like there's something missing in our lives. So what do we do? We try to fill what we think is missing. I haven't bought a house yet, so we make that our goal. I need to be able to buy a house. Man, it's so difficult here in the Bay Area. Or if you've bought a house already, you think, well, I got to pay this thing off. My gosh, this is killing me. 30 years, (laughs) 30 years, let's go. Once I pay this thing off, I'll feel better, I'll feel more at rest. Or maybe you have a car, but you wish you had a nicer car. Or maybe it's, you're looking at the Condé Nast, 10 places you must go in 2023, and you're like, it's already the middle of November. Got a month and a half left. No wonder I feel like I am missing out in life. And what do we do? We continue to look for this sense of buzz or fulfillment through these experiences or buying things or vacations because we feel like that will fill, that will quench our thirst for whatever is missing. But that's not going to do it. Surrounding your life with these things does not 
improve, does not change the very nature of your life. When I was growing up in the 90s, there was this movie called Major League. I'm sure almost nobody knows it. Charlie Sheen. You're probably like, who's that? Um, it was about the Cleveland Indians. It was a baseball team. It was a really funny movie back then. Uh, I don't think it was the most uh, wholesome back then either, but don't, don't go watch it. But uh, this is, you know, it's about this ragtag group of guys, pretenders, this baseball team. And there's this one guy, he, he called himself Willie Mays Hayes, right? So he, he, he really wanted to look better than he was. So he drove this car. It was a Volkswagen Beetle. And he put on the front of it, he souped it up with the front of a Rolls Royce. So it had a Rolls Royce grill and hood attached to a Volkswagen Beetle. And he would drive this in. And when you, when you look at it, you're like, oh, at first glance, you're like, that looks like a Rolls. And you're like, wait a second. There's something really wrong about this Rolls Royce. Because as you look at it, you're like, this is weird. It looks like a Rolls, but it's not. It's a Volkswagen Beetle with a Rolls hood and grill. It's ridiculous. You can't turn a Volkswagen Beetle into a Rolls Royce just by patching and slapping a couple of things onto it. In the same way, you cannot fill what's missing in your life by just having more things, more experiences, more money. That doesn't change your life itself. For that, Jesus says, come to me and drink. Come to me and drink, and I will quench your thirst. Every addiction is a sign that we're looking to satisfy our thirst somewhere else, whether it's pornography or an eating addiction, or shopping, or alcoholism, or gambling, or binging on entertainment. These different addictions are us looking somewhere else to be filled, but that doesn't fill us. Even religion, even if you come to church, friends, brothers and sisters, if you come to church and you find yourself going through these motions and you find that it actually feels quite empty, friends, don't just come to church, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. You can come to church, but not come to Jesus. You can come to church and check it off that you did it, but that's very different from coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I need you to fill my soul. I know that nothing in this world can satisfy me. I want you. I want more of you. Come to Jesus. The Holy Spirit is what works within us to fill us. Now, one other thing here. The Holy Spirit, two things here. The Holy Spirit comes within us, as Jesus said. Come and drink, and the Holy Spirit will fill you. But he also says the rivers of the Holy Spirit will flow from your heart, meaning the Spirit of God will also work without. The Spirit of God works within and without. Both of these. Now, one, one passage from the Old Testament that I think describes this better than any other is Ezekiel 47. When God takes Ezekiel in a vision to the temple, and when Ezekiel is there at the temple, he sees the temple of Jerusalem. In his vision, he sees water trickling out from the temple, from the threshold of the temple, just a little bit of water like leaking out. But then he follows this water and the water begins to get deeper, a few inches deep. And then he's walking in this water. And then as he keeps going, it becomes ankle deep. Then it becomes knee deep. Then it becomes waist deep. And he's wading in it. Eventually, the water becomes neck deep and becomes a river. It becomes a river. And this is, this is what is described to him. It says, and he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah. 
and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. Now, the amazing thing about this imagery, friends, if you, follow, if you take out a map and you look at Jerusalem and where the temple is and you look at where it flows based on Ezekiel's vision, this water that becomes a river and it flows into the sea, that sea is actually the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea. Now, the Dead Sea is called the Dead Sea because it's one-third salt. It is so salty that nothing can live in it. That's why it's called the Dead Sea. It is absolutely dead. If you've ever been there and you've gone onto the water, you know that you could float right on top of the water. It is so dense because of the salt. And you don't need to know how to swim. You don't need to know how to float. You're just floating right on top of it because it's so salty. Nothing can live in it. In Ezekiel, God is saying that Dead Sea, when the river from the temple flows to it, it brings life wherever it goes, even that river. And that river will become filled with fish and birds will migrate there. It will become teeming with life. Brothers and sisters, that's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit brings life wherever it goes. Not only does the Holy Spirit work within you, when you come to Jesus and you drink and you, and you come and you believe in Jesus, not only does he come to you and meet all of your deepest needs, but when you go into this world, the Holy Spirit goes with you into this world and you become the vessel. The river of the Holy Spirit flows through you into wherever you go to bring life, to bring life into your relationships through you. That when you go into your workplace and you see people just in the rat race, in that grind, struggling with anxiety, just, just thinking of it, just wanting, worshiping money, worshiping success, you can speak a different word of hope to them and give them life. If you're a student and you go to school and you see so many people struggling with anxiety, that is, man, as a parent here in the Bay Area, I see that. Nowadays, I feel like, my gosh, how does anybody get into college? Like, if I were a student now, I would never get into college. I got into college back when it was easy now, and, and there's so much anxiety for students. You can be a student that you walk into school and you can give a different word to people. You can bring a different hope to people. You can bring life to people. Brothers and sisters, you, through the Holy Spirit moving within you, as you move into this world, can bring life to this world. Friends, do you want to change this world? Many people want to change this world. Many people go into nonprofit work, join the Peace Corps, whatever it might be, because they want to change this world. And, and that's good. But you know how to really, really change this world? The Holy Spirit flowing through you brings life into this world. Now, now please don't misunderstand me. Does that mean that if you're not a Christian, that people who aren't Christians can't help this world? No, it doesn't mean that. Does that mean it's not good that they go and, and, and dig wells and provide water for people? No, that's, that's really good. Good, do that. Does that mean that it's not good if they go and provide food for people who are starving? No, that's really good. Go and do that. Christians, we should do that as well. I'm so thankful for our, our local love team that does that in our, in our very neighborhood. 
here as well. That is good. We should do that. But here's the thing. Here's the thing that we can do as Christians as well. We, we don't just provide a well and water for people. We can also tell them about living water that comes through Christ. We don't just provide them food, but we can also tell them about the bread of life, about Jesus, who can truly satisfy their soul. People who are not Christians, they can do a lot. They can keep life going, but they cannot tell people the true meaning of life. They can provide sustenance in the present, but they cannot provide hope for the future. This can only come to those who come to Jesus and drink. And we are those that can bring the water of the Holy Spirit, this message of coming to Jesus, to the people in this world who are thirsty, who may not even know it, may not think that they're thirsty. They may look at you and say, I have so much more than you. What can you offer me? But they are thirsty. They are dehydrated. They are starving if they do not have Jesus. Friends, let me close with an an article that I read that I, I think is really, really fascinating. It's called, As an Atheist, I Truly Believe Africa Needs God. This was written by Matthew Paris. Um, in a British newspaper called The Times back in December 27th of 2008. Um, Matthew Paris uh, grew up in South Africa. Um, He's not a Christian. He's not a Christian. Um, But I found this article so interesting. So I want to read read to it um, from length, at length a little bit here. He said this, Before Christmas I returned, after 45 years, to the country that as a boy I knew as Nyazaland. Today it's Malawi. And The Times... Christmas Appeal, which was a thing held by the Times of of London, includes a small British charity working there, Pump Aid. Pump Aid helps rural communities to install a single pump, letting people keep their village wells sealed and clean. I went to see this work. It inspired me, renewing my flagging faith in development charities. But traveling in Malawi refreshed another belief too. One I've been trying to banish all my life, but an observation I've been unable to avoid since my African childhood. It confounds my ideological beliefs, stubbornly refuses to fit my worldview, and has embarrassed my growing belief that there is no God. Now a confirmed atheist, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa. Sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects, and international aid efforts. These alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. I used to avoid this truth by applauding, as you can, the practical work of mission churches in Africa. It's a pity, I would say, that salvation is part of the package. But Christians, black and white, working in Africa, do heal the sick, do teach people to read and write. And only the severest kind of secularist could see a mission hospital or school and say that the world would be better without it. I would allow that if faith was needed to motivate missionaries to help, then fine. But what counted was the help, not the faith. But this doesn't fit the facts. 
Faith does more than support the missionary. It is also transferred to his flock. This is the effect that matters so immensely in which I cannot help observing. First, then the observation. When we, we had friends who were missionaries, and as a child, I stayed often with them. I also stayed alone with my little brother in a traditional rural African village. In the city, we had working for us Africans who had converted and were strong believers. The Christians were always different. Far from having cowed or confined its, ex, its converts, their faith appeared to have liberated and relaxed them. There was a liveliness, a curiosity, an engagement with the world, a directness in their dealings with others that seemed to be missing in traditional African life. They stood tall. At 24, traveling by land, land across the continent reinforced this impression. From Algiers to Niger, to Niger Nigeria, Cameroon, and the Central African Republic, then right through the Congo to Rwanda, Tanzania, and Kenya. Four student friends and I drove our old Land Rover to Nairobi. We slept under the stars, so it was important as we reached the more populated and lawless parts of the Sub-Sahara that every day we find somewhere safe by nightfall, often near a mission. Whenever we entered a territory worked by missionaries, we had to acknowledge that something changed in the faces of the people we passed and spoke to. Something in their eyes, the way they approached you direct, man-to-man, -man, without looking down or away. They had not become more deferential towards strangers, in some ways less so, but more open. This time in Malawi, Malawi it was the same. I met no missionaries. You do not encounter missionaries in the lobbies of expensive hotels discussing development strategy documents as you do with the big NGOs. But instead, I noticed that a handful of the most impressive African members of the pump aid team, largely from Zimbabwe, were privately strong Christians. Privately, because the charity is entirely secular, and I never heard of any of its team so much as mention religion while working in the villages. But I picked up the Christian references in our conversations. One I saw was studying a devotional textbook in the car. One on Sunday went off to church at dawn for a two-hour service. It would suit me to believe that their honesty, diligence, and optimism in their work was unconnected with personal faith. Their work was secular, but surely affected by what they were. What they were was, in turn, influenced by a conception of man's place in the universe that Christianity had taught. Now, whether people believe uh, or agree with what Matthew Paris says here or not, it's, it's up to them. But I find this really, really fascinating. This is a man who is not a Christian. He is an avowed atheist who sees the work, sees the change and transformation wrought by Christianity. It, it's easy for Christians to say, well, God is doing work in the world. It's harder to hear that from an atheist who would prefer there to be no religion in the world. But Matthew Paris saw something a change that happens through the work of what I would call the Holy Spirit in the lives of people. It is good to build wells. It is good to feed the hungry. It is good to build houses. But as Christians, there is something that we can offer that the world cannot. We can say, come and drink. A house won't quench your thirst. Water won't quench your thirst. There's a deeper thirst because we have been made by God and for God.
when the, when the, the soldiers came back to the priests and they said, where is he? Why didn't you bring him? They said, no one ever spoke like this man. That is true. Because no one could ever say, come to me and drink and I will quench your thirst. Because no person, no idea, no vision or cause in this world could do that except the Son of God who died upon the cross, who went back to the Father and sent his Holy Spirit to be within our hearts. Would you come to Jesus today and drink? He invites you. If you are thirsty, come and drink. I want to invite the worship team up here now. And if we could stand together as we respond at this time to this message.